Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. You're not really how I imagine an art critic would look. Can't tell me you never wanted to paint. Seriously, what do you want to be when you're a kid? I was never a kid. You're one of those. I'm a witch. A liar. Yeah. Ever heard of Joseph Cassidy? The art dealer? Mm hmm. Been invited to his estate. You got rich friends. If you could interview any living artist, who do you think it would be? At the edge of my property, there's a dilapidated little house. In this house, there's an artist. No critic has spoken to this guy in over 50 years. Jerome Debney. It's an honor, Mr. Debney. Think of the splash it would make. See and describe his current work. No, no, no. I cannot abide such things. You could be running a major museum soon. And why would you do this for me? I'd value a deadly jazz. And I'd like you to procure one for me. What is this about? Redemption, embezzlement and forgery. Kind of underhanded, don't you think? You know what we need to do. Most people are not what you'd expect. You know, don't you? They want truth. Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I am Mike White, and on this episode I am talking with screenwriter Scott Smith about the new movie, The Burnt Orange Heresy. If you have listened to The Projection Booth over the years, you know that I'm a very big fan of the writer Charles Williford. We've done episodes about Miami Blues and The Woman Chaser, and we'll also be doing one eventually on the film Cockfighter, which was also based on one of his novels. When I wrote about Charles Williford back in the, gosh, probably late 90s, was a very daunting task because Williford is one of, to me, one of the greatest writers. And to write about a writer took a little bit of um, self-prodding to finally get that going. 
going through all of his books, he covers a lot of similar subjects. He has some very interesting characters. You know, we talked about Junior in Miami Blues, this sociopath, and the main character of Burnt Orange Heresy is very much cut from the same cloth. Burnt Orange Heresy takes into account Williford's love of art. He is able to take that and graft it onto one of his stories about a sociopath. In this case, it is Jaime Figueres, a Puerto Rican-American art critic who goes on a very plum assignment for an editor to interview a reclusive artist and steal one of his paintings. I won't say much more than that because I really encourage everyone within the sound of my voice to read that book. It is one of my favorite Willifords. It's a little bit different than some of the other things that he did, which were more straight-up crime novels. This is very, very fascinating stuff. The movie, does it work? I think so. I was not able to see the best copy in the world because this movie, it was probably released at the worst time you could possibly release a movie in the 21st century so far. It was released limited in, I think, just LA, maybe New York as well, March 5th, 2020. It was since closed because all of the movie theaters have closed. The last report that I read had it opening August 7th. I hope that it doesn't open that day because I don't think that things will be safe enough to open movies there. Maybe it'll get a VOD release. Who knows what the future of this movie is. When I wrote about Williford, like I was saying, there was talk of an adaptation of Burnt Orange Heresy all the way back then. So it has taken a lot of years for this to finally hit the screen. I found it interesting that our main character was changed to a British person instead of a Puerto Rican American, but yet he still kept the same name. So that was a little bit off-putting just because I had Figueres in my head, but I enjoyed the performance of our main actor. Some of the attitudes towards women are a little outdated, but I think that Smith has updated them quite a bit from where they were, and I want to say 71 is when the book came out. And also, because Williford is writing from a sociopathic point of view, everyone is just kind of there for Figueres's amusement. They don't feel necessarily like real people, but I think that's very much his interpretation of the world, not Smith, but our main characters. I would recommend that you check that out. Definitely check out the book. I hope you enjoy this interview. Stay safe. Were you always a writer? Did you always love to write? I liked it in a way that, you know, you like stuff that you're different subjects in school or something, but I didn't really imagine myself making a living doing it. I don't think it seemed like a feasible option. And I took some workshops uh, in college and after college, and it started to seem like something maybe I could do. And were you always writing fiction? Yeah, I was always a big reader. I think that that was as much as anything. You know, when I was a kid, I definitely was a, a big reader. Was both A Simple Plan and The Ruins out before A Simple Plan movie, or was it A Simple Plan book and then A Simple Plan movie? A Simple Plan book, and then it actually took, I think there were five years of 
a new director every year with the movie, which was a great sort of education in screenwriting because I got to work with Mike Nichols, Ben Stiller, John Dahl, uh, John Borman, and then Sam Raimi. It was bad luck. It was, you know, good luck in the long run. How was that adapting your own work? When Mike Nichols optioned it, I met with him. He was just a super sweet, generous guy. I was this shy kid, really, and I, I like tongue-tied. I could, I could barely talk around him. He said, oh, just, you know, the book feels very filmic. Just go off and put the manuscript in screenplay form, and you'll be fine. And I did that, and I had like a 290-page script or something. <laughs> and I think he, he was like, oh, my God, I don't even know how to talk to this kid. And he brought in Ben Stiller, who really taught me how to write a script, I feel like, working with him. Working with him, and then, then a little later, after he disappeared and John Dahl disappeared, I worked for a while with Scott Rudin, the producer, and I learned a, a ton from him also. How was it working with Sam Raimi on the final film? It was great. You know, Sam actually came on, and he liked the Ben Stiller draft, which was a little closer to the book, and, and the Billy Bob character died halfway through the movie rather than at the end. And Billy Bob was already attached, and at that point, Billy Bob was post-Swing Blade. He was the only reason anyone was giving us money to make the movie. We met with Billy Bob, and he kind of took the two scripts, he laid them out, and he paged through one to where he died, and he paged through the other where he died, and he's like, kind of kind of want to live till the end, Sam. <laughs> so we ended up doing the, the, the latter job. But Sam's great. He's, he's, he's a Michigan native, funny and self-deprecatory and just gave me a false sense of how easy and pleasant making a movie can be. I mean, it must be so interesting for you to not only do a simple plan, but then to, I mean, I can't say turn around because it was another 10 years before The Ruins came out, but to also adapt yourself for The Ruins. I've been very lucky. And that was actually Ben Stiller, who you know I met with Simple Plan. He, he was the one who optioned The Ruins. So I wrote that script for, for him, which is great to have that opportunity. How is it to have to kill your babies when it comes to taking out things to make a screen story. I've always been okay with it. I, I, I've done other adaptations that, you know, haven't been made. I did a, uh, a Richard Stark novel called Backslash, uh, which is a lot of fun. I just finished uh, Tim O'Brien's The Things They Carried, which is Vietnam War story. I went through a stretch where I was doing a lot of scripts for Ben Stiller's company none of which ended up getting made, but some of those were adaptations also. I've always kind of felt like you have to break it and then rebuild it. Um, and, and that's true with, with Burn Orange. There's a lot that's not in the book, but I hope that the essence of the book, you know, remains and animates the movie. How familiar were you with Charles Williford as a writer? Uh, not super. You know, I knew his name. I think I'd read Cockfight, the, the Cockfighting one. It was a long time ago. I'd seen uh, Miami Blues, which I liked a lot. Actually, one of the producers on Burnt Orange, that was his first movie that he worked on, Bill Hartberg. So I wasn't, I wasn't that familiar. But I, you know, I, I loved the book as soon as I started it. It's so dated in certain ways. And I loved the, the acidic feel of it, but I knew that it was too much. It felt to me like too much for, for a movie especially the Bernice character 
in the book is is you have the sense that Wilford knew someone and was was symbolically murdering her on the page. He had a bad experience with someone named Bernice. And I felt like it was both to update it a little and also just for, to strengthen the, the filmic part of the story. I just felt like Bernice had to be more intriguing and, and have a little more like depth and complexity to her. Um, and I think I started there and then a lot of the changes came about from a not knowing that there was not going to be a lot of money to make the film. And so, you know, basically having it all in one location, condensing it down to, you know, four actors. Some of that just came from my, you know, real world consideration about how will this ever get made, which ultimately is true for the ship from Florida to Italy. When were you actually brought onto it? It was nine years from when uh, Bill Holberg, the producer, sent me the book. And there was a there's another director before Giuseppe Dante Ariola, and at that point, it, for that period, it was always set in Florida. And then eventually, the idea came through Tino you know, to switch it to Italy when Giuseppe came on. So I imagine you worked on this way back in what 2010, and then work on it a a, a bit more throughout the years, probably a lot more throughout the years. But then you have to be working on other things, your own writing, on other screenplays, sure. on other adaptions. I mean, that's going to be an interesting way to mix all those projects. Yeah. It's one of the things that I, I've enjoyed about the screenwriting is I like having, you know, two or three things going at once and going back and forth. This was especially long, but a lot of them take a long time. And, and if everything, if you're pending everything on one project, I, I just think emotionally it would be really stressful. The draft of the scripts, the first draft didn't really change a lot. There, there was just trouble getting it made uh, with Dante in America. There's a long period of just hiatus where it seemed like maybe just wasn't going to happen. It was touch and go throughout, again, just from a money perspective. Tell me a little bit more about Siberia, because you're credited with both screenplay and the story. Sure. I've been Burn Orange, the producer who runs Keanu's production company, had read it at the time they were thinking about doing a an erotic thriller and they felt like the producer responded to the erotic element of burn orange and so we just started you know talking about i mean it's very it's 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 a hollywood story in the sense that at the time they had they had funding russian money to make a movie and so they're like let's set a movie in russia and let's have it be an erotic thriller, and that was basically what we started with. By the time we ended up making the movie, we no longer had Russian money. We actually had German money. Um, nonetheless, it was the Russian element state. And the, the erotic element, there was much more of in the initial kind of draft, and that was kind of whittled away. I think it's just people maybe got a little timid around how far they were going to go with that. But the initial impulse was to do a you know, Last Tango in Paris type movie you know all the stories that you hear about Keanu are, are it, it's true he's just an, a great guy and and um, it, it was a joy to work with him I was so curious because he speaks Russian a lot in the John Wick films and then he's speaking Russian in this does he actually know Russian no they had a, someone who trained him for each of those lines he's a he's a hard worker I know with some screenwriters, you know, you turn in your draft or whatever, and it's just like, okay, that's great. And then that's it. Like, you're not really involved in the project anymore. Are you actually on set for any of these movies that you're working on? 
I, I've never been on a movie set. <laughs> I've been on it. <clears throat> I've done some a little bit of TV now. I was on the TV set for one day. But yeah, I've never been on the any of the movies that got made. I, know, I feel like I was always, I never felt unwelcome. It's it just a personal inclination. The Burnt Orange Heresy happened to come out at probably the worst time that you could release a movie in maybe, I don't want to say human history, but at least in the history of the 21st century so yep. far. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It was, it was it was exquisitely timed with the pandemic. There was a screening, it happened to be in L.A., and there was a screening in L.A. It was like, and literally the week before everything shut down. Spent the following week certain that I'd, you know, caught the virus going to the screening. <laughs> so what have you been working on during the pandemic? I'm doing a, uh, another adaptation. Of, it's a TV show for uh, Amazon, uh, William Gibson's The Peripheral, uh, sci-fi. Are you working on that with Vincenzo? Yes. You know Vincenzo? Yeah, he's been on the show several times. Oh, he's great. Um, it's a great group of people. It's Kilter Films, the people who do Westworld, husband and wife, Jonah, uh, Nolan, and Lisa Joy. Super smart and intimidatingly smart. It's been a fun project. But I don't know whether, you know, when it'll ever be made, given the state of the world, but we're producing scripts. Scott, thank you so much for your time. This was wonderful talking with you. Likewise, and, and seriously, good luck trying to make something uh, halfway intelligent out of that. <laughs>